Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast series that dials in on some of the basic tenets, principles, and overall ideas in Army Doctrine. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and today I'm talking with a fellow Doctrine author from across the pond in UK's Concepts and Doctrine Directorate with the Land Warfare Center. Uh, it's in Warminster, but more importantly, Sergeant Major Paul Barnes, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mom. How are you? So you and I share a common writing effort. Uh, we are examining and writing about the principles of war for our respective armies and their capstone doctrine, and that's how we became friends. And then we decided to compare notes about the principles and how they began, how they evolved, and how they are reflected in our current writing, which is why it's awesome that you're actually here in Leavenworth today, and we can share what we learned from these individual experiences. But first, I think we probably need to tell the audience why you're way more eminently qualified to talk about this than I am. Okay, I'm not sure that's entirely true, but I'll try and do my best. Um, So I have, during the summer, been writing the UK Defence Doctrine Principles of War. Uh, we did a, a quite a major study of trying to look at exactly what it was that, that was important about the principles, whether they were really important or whether they were just almost like a throwaway uh, piece of information. Um, and so I did that. And then after that, I've started to write a book on the principles of war and the future of the principles of war. So. Uh, I suppose I've done a fair bit of research in the last six, eight, nine months, uh, which kind of puts me in a position that other people aren't are less fortunate than, than I to be in. Yeah. So before we get into any good stuff about doctrine, um, I want to lay out some ground rules. And the fact is we're going to be talking about principles and theories today that are predominantly Western European. And there are countless military theorists that have informed our principles of war and our theories of victory, both for the US Army and the British Army. And while our American Army doctrine runs a gambit of influence from Prussian to French to Chinese, um, we're only gonna focus on one particular model, which is the principles of operations for us or the principles of war for you. And a theorist who is most frequently cited and credited for the origin, the original principles of war as we know them. And secondly, Sergeant Major Barnes and I are going to share a discussion on this episode because while we both write military doctrine and speak English, we are still two different militaries united by the common language, even though we fundamentally disagree that what is a biscuit, and it's definitely cookies. I'm sorry. Definitely biscuits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what I do want to start with, though, before we really get on this is our different definitions because what that is going to do, I think, is set the conditions for us to be able to talk about how our definitions diverged, despite the fact we share a common background in the military. So our definition for the US Army, when we talk about principles as they apply to techniques and tactics and procedures, is to say that a principle is a comprehensive and fundamental rule or an assumption of central importance that guides how an organization approaches and thinks about the conduct of operations. And when we talk about the principles of operations, both from the Army standpoint, but also from US Joint Doctrine, we are talking about time-tested general characteristics of successful operations that serve as guides for the conduct of future operations. Our principles of operation have remained largely the same for about the past 40 years. 
most of them know them by the acronym MUSMUS. And oddly enough, I think that probably has been the acronym at least ever as long as I've been in, and that's been 20 years. But we've also added joint principles of operations, and that occurred in about the last 15 years of doctrine where we talked about more than just mass, objective, offensive, surprise, economy of force, maneuver, unity of command, simplicity and security. We added in joint operations restraint, perseverance, and legitimacy. And there's reasons for that, but those reasons sometimes are lost because we lose the context. For you guys, you've come away with a completely different approach to how you wrote about the principles of operations. And you moved the way that you talked about it and where you talk about it in your new ADP land operations. You moved it out of the annexes and into the body of the text. And Barney, you did that personally. I want to ask what drove you to do that. So when we looked at the whole uh the whole of ADP land operations. Previously, it was in one manual, and we decided to go for a more thematic approach and break it out into six sub-manuals. Um, the important thing there was that we also wanted to carve it down to the smallest portions we possibly could. It needs to be a really tight, small document, and that meant that when we came to look at annexes, we kind of they have to pay their own pay their own way. If they're not saying something that's important, then we get rid of them. They just go. And uh, Principles of War was in an annex. So the first question was, what are we doing with this? Is, is this just an annex that's there because traditionally it's always been there? or And therefore not doing anything and therefore pointless? Or is there something to this? And having read them and done the research, it became apparent that in actual fact they are the foundation. For, for, the, for our tenets of doctrine, maneuverous approach, mission command, uh, integrated action, combined arms, they provide the background for that. And so you, we had to make them a, a more important part. So what we did was we made them the as the foundation. We put them first, front and center, and said, these are the principles of war. And these are the tenets of doctrine that fall out of that. So they, they move from being an annex to being up front in uh, part two in chapter three, um, which deals with maneuverist approach, et cetera, et cetera. So what are your principles? So uh, I'll give you the definition first uh, because they're slightly different, um, but, but strangely we say the same thing, but we just say it in a different way, pretty much like the way we talk. So there you go. Uh, the principles of war provide comprehensive considerations at all levels for the planning and execution of campaigns and operations. They are not absolute or prescriptive, but provide an empirical foundation for adversary-focused military activity. Except for the master principle, which is placed first, the relative importance of each will vary according to context and their com application um, according to judgment. So it is similar, but there are some differences. Our first principle of war uh, is selection and maintenance of the aim. Um, that has been a... that took over from the objective in 1960. You'll find as I go through this that, that we, we say the same things. We say them slightly differently. And we also, in the British military, are more open to changing them than you might imagine. So this is not like Einstein's theory of relativity or, or, or a principle like universal gravitation. These are principles which 
are set in stone, but the description changes as the character of warfare changes. That's the British position. So to give you a bit of, before I waffle on about these individual principles, to give you a bit of background maybe, um, in, uh, in the 20s when we, when we took these on, um, at each stage, at each stage as, as things develop, different generals have had their fingers in the pie and have often changed things considerably. So, in 1935, Fuller's eight principles that we originally adopted go down to five under um, generals in, in, the thir in 35. By 1940, it's found that that's wrong because of experience in wartime. In 1945, Field um, Marshal Montgomery makes air power the principal, uh, the principal, the principal principle of war. By 1960, it's gone, as has logistics, which he brought in in 1945. Logistics then bobs back in 1998. Principles of war, uh, the selection of maintenance of the aim, that bobs in in 1960, having been nowhere, but then comes about because of dropping the objective and replacing it with that. So I suppose our experience of each campaign or each war that we've been through puts a slightly different twist on it and allows us to sort of explain away the changes. Yeah. What are the other ones? So next would be offensive action, which I think you probably recognize. Yeah. Uh, then uh, surprise and uh, security, which are two sides of the same coin. Um, concentration of force, economy of effort, cooperation, traditionally, security, as we mentioned, flexibility, and the maintenance of morale. Uh, the maintenance of morale, I, I know that morale represents a, a particular issue it's, it, for the US military in terms of its inclusion as a principle of war. And then finally, sustainability. So it's funny because we had, when we first looked at it in 1921, which was the post-World War I era, we used to have cooperation as well. And it's funny how that has come off of our lineup of the principles of operations. Yet, largely when I look back at it, you know, the times in which we have gone through and put the principles of, of war into our foundational doctrine, it's so much of the language has remained largely the same. Cooperation fell out, but everything else stayed largely stagnant and static. And that's, that's tough because they are, as you said, these ideas of something foundational, but I don't know, I'm, I'm nervous that by continuing to go along with the moose must, like we should, that ultimately, do you think that, that that has made our principles, our principles here in America, at risk of becoming static? So there's a, there's a beauty to your principles, uh, and, it's, and we discovered this this summer. Um, if you look at yours compared to ours, ours are often a phrase. Uh, so it'll be selection and maintenance of the aim. That pins you down to talking about one aspect of the objective. Whereas just saying the objective frees you up to describe all sorts of things around that. Yours in many ways have more flexibility than ours, but we seem to be more, um, we're more likely to, to change things. Uh, so whether or not actually in the, in the round we're, we're achieving very much different. So I think we're probably in the same place, but we're just approaching it from two different directions. So how did you bring the idea of the principles of war 
for you forward into your capstone doctrine, how did you maintain that ability to be both descriptive and also to show linkages across the tenants and also across tactics as well? So, so what, what, what we did originally was to try and get rid of the phrases. So the phrases which we've been using um, and, and also to try to modernize some of the, uh, some of the words. So sustainability stays. It's, it's, it's fairly, fairly easy to understand. Maintenance of morale. I wanted to change that to just morale. So the aspect, uh, and it's an important aspect here, is, is that um, morale, with morale you're not trying just to maintain your morale. You're trying to do the opposite too. So you're trying to denude your opponent's morale. And that, what I wanted to say by using morale was to be able to talk about that duality. Uh, because maintenance of morale doesn't allow you to talk about the morality. It just says, do morale, uh, which is as to, as to how useful that is. So flexibility was the first one we changed. We changed that to adaptability. Uh, the reason I changed it, flexibility to adaptability, is flexibility, if you think about the definition, is almost like how something flexes when, when under pressure. So like a tree flexing in the wind. Um, which is fine uh, and useful, but adaptability allows you to change from being a tree into being something else. And it's that adaptability that gives you the edge and has given, more importantly, so this isn't, this isn't um, hubristic or, or, or uh, an idea of just an interpretation of the modern. What I'm saying is this is provable through history that adaptable forces with adaptable people are the difference. That is the advantage. That's the successful advantage. So that's why we changed it to adaptability from flexibility. Uh, security remained uh, the same. Cooperation is changed to integration. So the idea there is to, is to, is to demonstrate that change from merely cooperating through to integrating so that everything all parts work together seamlessly. And this is the strength of combined arms. And this is where we, we're trying to encourage that. And obviously that fits in quite nicely with MDO and, and MDI for us. Um, economy of effort uh, remains the same, but concentration of force. We change concentration of force. I would have preferred to use the word concentration and then explained it out from there. But we we couldn't get that past the 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 rest of the army and so it's changed to concentration of effects so the idea is that you won't be physically concentrated at a point but your effects will be physically concentrated at a point or virtually concentrated at a point so you're using physical and virtual effects at a point rather than putting people there because on the battlefield today you just can't hang around for five minutes so it's funny that you did that partly because of the fact and it's something i noticed as well when i was working on on necking down the descriptions that I had, that making doctrine that is written for a practitioner at a basic level and changing headers to make these terms more consumable to to new readers or to, to novice readers and novice practitioners at, at the art of war, um, sometimes has, it, it's risky, right? Like I can stand back and say, I know exactly what economy of force or or mass, what that means to me, but yet when we turn around and say, well, it's effects now, well, but what was wrong with using force previously? It, it, so for us, 
it purely is what people will accept. Um, I'm not happy, so I'm not entirely happy with that. I, I'd rather that we do the hard yards intellectually by being true to ourselves and making people rethink about the things that they have just taken for granted. You know, the moose must, the people understanding it exactly like that. So it has to, don't change the words because the mnemonic won't work. And that's, that's not where we're at. So personally, I'd have gone further. And, and as we've discussed, I've, when we were doing the project, I gave three options. Uh, the first option was a very light touch where we would basically touch nothing and just change words in the descriptions. The second one was we'd have a look at it and we'd try and change some of the descriptions and the titles. And the third option was a deep dive into the principles of war and coming up with alternatives. These are highly contentious. They are divergent thinking. This is this is really right and left of arc as far as thinking is concerned. But I was surprised by how much support they got. Um, and so what I think I'll do is I'll just give you the, the header, um, the headers for each. So the first principle of war is understanding. And understanding is the paramount principle of war because superior decision-making is at the core of competitive success. Commanders must seek to understand their own capabilities and weaknesses those of the opponent, the perspective of audiences within and without which they may operate, and the character of the wider operational environment. And that that must be an ongoing and iterative process through the whole campaign. The second one uh, is the first of the ones that people started to get shaky over, and that's legitimacy. And that is, in the fight to dominate the narrative and attain a desired outcome, it is vital that the force is legitimate. Commanders must establish and maintain legal and moral authority in every aspect of a campaign. The military instrument must be used proportionately with an understanding that negative actions can have serious political and strategic effects. So one quick thing, that sounds a lot like the ones that we currently have, which are restraint and legitimacy that are part of the joint principles yeah. of operation. So the next one is morale. And we said, a high state of morale provides the motivation which drives the force to the successful attainment of the desired outcomes. Uh, and ends with a, a short line of, war is a human activity, with psychology being key to success and failure. Success is thus a matter of maintaining one's purpose while eroding that of one's opponent. So that was the duality, getting the duality of morale in. Uh, the next was initiative, and it is, this takes, we remove offensive action, and we go to initiative, and we say, it is through seizing and retaining initiative that a commander gains advantage and sustains momentum. As it is an active rather than a passive approach, and is the primary means by which a commander influences the outcome of a campaign or engagement, it is achieved by a combination of audacious offensive and defensive actions, designed to dislocate and disrupt an opponent by deception preemption, tempo, simultaneity, and tenacious exploitation. So what we've said is it's not just about being offensive, it's about the initiative. And I think that goes all the way back to Fuller, who uses initiative in the 1920s. Then integration. Uh, so throughout history, the combination of effects has proven key to military success. Today, we have the ability to integrate actions across domains in concert with allies and partners to achieve mass. Integrated actions demand unified command, directing uh, created effects to a desired outcome. The next one was the most contentious, 
Um, the gunners don't like this. Uh, and it is precision. It is impossible to be strong everywhere. Created effects must be delivered economically and precisely, targeting the right object in the right space at the right time. Which is odd because that's so close to economy of effects. It's close already to objective. Like all of these things are so close to what we currently have already. They are. Why be contentious or why was it contentious? So why it's contentious is because when a gunner sees the word precision, he sees something that isn't, he sees, he just sees what he knows. He doesn't get to think about what this is saying. What precision is saying is you need to have economy of effort, but you also have to deliver precisely because if you don't, you're leaving a strong point unbroken. The point of, and so everything must be delivered precisely. And that also goes to the idea of legitimacy. So if you're going to destroy a town, don't destroy the town, destroy the strong point within the town. And that's all about precision. So it all acts itself. I think adaptability I've done already and sustainability we've done already, which is the logistic element. And then the final one, which was the one that I added last, was resilience. Uh, war is a brutal and visceral activity, placing extreme physical and psychological demands on personnel and requiring the constant care of people and equipment. In war, a number of factors, for example, weather, terrain and connectivity, conspire to make even the simplest activities difficult, obscuring understanding under a fog of war. To mitigate these difficulties, practitioners must be mentally and physically robust, equipment must be standardised and easily replaced, and intent and actions must be simple and universally understood. So what we've sucked into that is the US idea of simplicity, ideas of resilience, fuller's conditions, and we've put them all back into, in doing this, I've put them all back into the place that Fuller would have recognised in 1920 with his full sense of what he was after. Um, but it did prove to be a bridge too far for, uh, for our senior management and leaders. So for right now, for FM30, the draft that we just sent out for initial staffing and review, and eventually we'll go back out again to the force, I, our principles of war are in an annex. And I love the fact that yours came forward into the actual description in the body of the language, which I think provides great context, but also it provides an opportunity for, for folks to genuinely think about what do the principles mean? How are they applicable? And ultimately, like, can they, can they change? And you and I discussed this last night. This was a great discussion that we had was, could we ever bring decision-making uh, decision advantage, decision dominance, whatever the term du jour is, and that foundational discussion that comes out of overwhelmingly Boyd's work with the OODA loop and decision making for fighter pilots in a cockpit, and has ultimately informed so much of what we do. Now the question is, could we ever bring that forward into the principles of war, and, and what would that look like? So we, we did discuss this, and, and at first I'm sitting and thinking, well, yeah, because Clearly, this has become something that's a principle or, or feels like a principle. And therefore, yeah, why not? Why not suck it in and, and make it an initial principle? Because looking back through history, the, the historical examples of, of uh, more rapid and more correct decisions leading to, leading to success would seem to make it a principle. But then I thought about it in terms of, is it more like 
maneuverist approach, mission command? Is it something that falls out of the principles of war? And I think it does. I think it, although you, I think the argument is finely balanced, and I can see the point about it being a principle, but I can also see the point about it being a tenet that it falls out from those principles. Um, and I think so. I think it's I think it's complex, finely balanced, but um, I think on on balance, I would prefer to see it uh, as a tenet. So it's always funny. We also discuss one other thing, which is that because we haven't changed our principles very much and we have remained relatively stable though obviously the moose most thing is it's, it's a thorn in my side a little bit because there's a reason that they're organized or that they were oriented the way that they were but there also is a reason why they were what they were and where they came from they're these ideas of new elements or, or new things they're they're always the observations of one person at one time looking at one portion of military operations in history. And this is why it was I couldn't wait to bring you on to talk because because there is one individual that has been overwhelmingly traced back to uh, to our theories of the principles. So let's talk about this because I think it's it's time to it's time to dig into JFC Fuller. Okay. I have so many questions about him. Oh my God. <laughs> so, um, yes. First so, of all, can we talk about who he is? Yeah, of course. So, uh, JFC Fuller was a major general in the British Army. Uh, he was a soldier from just before the Boer War, so in the 1890s through until uh, the early 1930s um, when he retired. He his military career. He starts off in the Boer War as a transport officer, uh, becomes well known as a very good staff officer. His ability to sort of keep many, many balls up in the air at once is, is seen as really useful. He goes, what he sees in the Boer War convinces him that he doesn't want any part in fighting or soldiers, um, that he doesn't really like soldiers and he doesn't like fighting. But what he does like is, is the intellectual rigor of, of staff work. So he applies for and becomes an adjutant uh, for the Middlesex Regiment uh, and a battalion of those which is a reserve regiment. He likes working with reservists, he finds them to be you know, clever and interesting and, and he starts to write about the best way to train reservists. There's a match here, all through British military thinking of the 19th century. Most of the best thinkers have all been people who've been working with the reserve, thinking about reserve training. There are a number of authors who have thought about this in the 19th century. And he's kind of following this on. Um, are you bringing this up because you used to be in the reserves? Once upon a time. But it's, it, the important thing is, that, as a theorist, he, he's interesting in that he's actually following in the footsteps of some fairly well-known people. So Hamley who wrote his, uh, his book on, on uh, the operations of war. Uh, that book, The Operations of War, became important at West Point, as well as being important at Sandhurst. Um, and others before him had all been interested in training the reserve. And it had been a major issue for the British for probably 40 years by the time he was writing this. So he's, he's writing that sort of stuff. Um, outbreak of the First World War, he does some transportation officer work on the south coast of England. 
but is itching to get over to do a staff job in uh, corps and divisions. He moves up through divisions and corps through till about the Battle of the Somme in 1916, and he is a very well thought of staff officer. He is then transferred to be a, a staff officer with the new tank corps. And it's here that he really starts to come into his own. Uh, so he, he starts to theorize about the use of tanks. He starts to theorize about, um, about tactics. Everything he's doing is surrounded by tanks. He's backwards and forwards to London with his ideas. He's not averse to writing to people. Um, and, and so he eventually becomes the lead thinker within the tank corps and is responsible for the in-depth planning of the Battle of Combray in 1917, and then goes on to be, uh, to be a planner around the Battle of Amiens. But by that point, he's been pulled away to work on another project, Plan 1919. The idea being that you create a huge armoured force that is just tanks, um, and it is going to steamroll across the, uh, the, the German position penetrate them and open up and basically unhinge the Germans. Plan 1919 at the time, and for many generations after actually, has been seen as something very, very special. But in actual fact, if you read it, you realise just how unworkable it is because it starts to look like lots of tanks with no support from artillery, no support from air power. No, it is just tanks, no infantry. So it's very peculiar. So this is, this is Fuller as an individual. I won't go on to his, his, the experimental force and stuff that went on in the 20s, but he refused to take up the experimental force because he couldn't concentrate on experimental tank force in the 20s. He was being asked also to be a garrison commander, and he didn't think he could think and do at the same time. Again, remember, he doesn't like soldiers, and he doesn't like mixing with them, and I think that's, there's an awful lot there. As a human being, and this is where, this is where it gets really interesting, Fuller's father was an uh, Anglican priest. His mother was French. Um, he didn't really have much of a schooling. Uh, he educated himself through reading books. His father didn't believe in formal education. Um, so he moves on in, in his time. And uh, he's, as a young boy, he's a very unusual. He's the sort of kid that, that pulls wings off flies and stuff. He's quite a nasty little piece of work, if I'm really honest. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is his stature. So he's a, he is a less than five foot four, and he weighs 115 pounds. If you see pictures of him on the Western Front, he looks like the scout that's been brought along to the party with proper, fully grown human beings. Very odd little character. And then the real oddness comes out when he's posted in India with the army um, in the period... Uh, before, just before the Boer War, uh, around that area anyway, where he becomes interested in esoteric religion of the East. And he ties himself to a character called Alistair Crowley, who is known as, uh, he's a Satanist. And, um, and, and Fuller takes on Satanism in, in a big way. He believes in it, he follows it, he joins various temples. Um, all this is, is probably bread and butter to the late Victorians and the Edwardians, but to us it looks exceptionally weird um, and he wraps up his weirdness in the 1920s and 30s by becoming a member of the British Union of Fascists 
Uh, he ties himself closely with the German Nazi party. In fact, he received a personal invitation from Hitler in April 1939 to go and look at the fantastic tanks that he'd built using Fuller's ideas that Fuller had been writing about. Um, there's no doubt that Fuller is a full-blown racist. Um, he believes in race theory. Uh, he believes in supremacy, particularly British supremacy. He even writes nasty little poems about the French and the Germans as a 20-odd-year-old, which is ironic because he married a German. His mother is French. Um, but he's an intense nationalist. Um, and to the end of his days, I mean, he died in 1967, but in his last book in 1961, he makes it absolutely clear that he believes that the wrong side won in the war, that the Germans should have won, and that, uh, and that the, the British and Americans have sold out to the Bolsheviks. Um, so he's a very unusual man in many respects. And it's, he's not alone in that. Like, I know that, that right now we've, we're digging in a little bit on this, partly because, as we said, he's most often credited for what we know as the principles of operations, principles of war. But he's, he's not alone as a military theorist. And between the two of us last night, we tried to think about, like, since the 20s, have we known a great military theorist? And of those ones that came about during the Edwardian and Victorian era, who were predominantly British, were, was, was there anybody of note that wasn't just a little bit bonkers? A little bit, just a smidge, tiny bit? I think military theorists are generally a bit mad. Um, I think you have to be. I think, I think you know, you have to be a little bit mad. And, and, and let's face it, you know, no one is purely good or bad. Uh, everybody is a mixture of everything. And some are just peculiar. And, and he is a very peculiar man. Um, but as to, as to whether that should, that should have any effect on our ability to see his work as being important, I think that's, that's a dangerous step. You know, if you write somebody off and say, he was a Nazi, he was heavily into yoga, I find that more suspect. Um, but you know, he has these things. Does that affect his ability to be an analyst of, of military history? No, probably not. Um, and so you, we've got to be able to divorce the capabilities of people. You know, um, some, some senior officers like to slap their soldiers in the past, but it doesn't mean they're not a great soldier. Uh, and so I think you have to be able to, you have to be able to divorce the capability and the impressiveness in one area against the weakness in another. And I think that comes back to a lot of the ways that we look at military history and how it's informed military history, a theory of victory, everything that has been the foundation of our doctrine as well, which is it's fundamentally built by people, but it's also fundamentally built on this idea of the best bad idea that we have at the moment. And even Fuller, when you know, when we were discussing Plan 1919, yeah, it's a it's a terrific idea. I'm sure every armor officer out there is like, all the tanks, give them all to me. <laughs> Absolutely, let's do this. But then we stand back and we look and it's like, wait a minute. He's working with the best bad idea that he had. Combined arms is the way that best we fight using artillery and infantry and sustainment. How do we, how do we make this all work? And ultimately, it, you and I both walked away with the same thing, which is that these these principles, the ones that especially we in the American army are so wedded to, they're conditional. There's a second half to the principles that JFC Fuller proposed. 
This is notable. So, so JFC Fuller believed in those principles, but he had a second part that, uh, that everyone's forgotten. And these are JFC Fuller's conditions of war. So it's, what he's saying is that you can do all these principles and you can do them right and still lose because the conditions can be against you. And conditions can be climate or you know, weather or illness or just luck. So they are important, but you have to weigh them against these conditions that are really important around the, around the side. And I think that's that's really interesting as well. It's not like a get out of jail card free. It's not like oh, if it doesn't work, just blame the conditions. Um, it's it is literally an idea of you know these principles will get you where you need to go as long as you keep them in mind and beware and always be looking for changes in conditions and always be willing to adapt yourself according to those conditions. So I'm one of those. I have a love hate relationship with the principles. And the fact that, yeah, I've, I've written about them now with FM30, and we've obviously discussed them up here in the office quite a bit. But at the same time, I also have stood back and looked at them and been like, eh, it's just a tool that I use to analyze campaigns. A 2020, you know, hindsight is 2020 methodology, as opposed to looking at them as something that is a, a, a tool to, to assess whether or not a plan is good or maybe could be better. Yeah, so. I don't view them as a hindsight thing at all. So they're put together by Fuller starting in about 1912, looking at specifically uh, the campaigns of Napoleon Bonaparte. So his nickname is Boney because he's a fan of Napoleon Bonaparte and also because at, at five foot three and 115 pounds, he's quite bony. Um, he looks bony, he looks like a walking skull. So the idea is that he is looking at those campaigns of Bonaparte and he's extracting what the causes of success were. And he's finding commonality. That's forming principles. Let's not forget, Fuller doesn't say, here are the principles of war in 1912, thank you very much. He says, here are six principles of war in 1912. He goes up to over 10 during the Great War and settles in the early 20s and about eight. So he's constantly using his experience in the First World War, juxtaposing it against what he knows of Napoleon Bonaparte's campaigns, and he's coming up with that. And then he's double-checking them against the battles and wars of antiquity. So he's seeing that there is this longevity. So what he then identifies are, here are eight principles of war, and you need to think about these principles of war when you're planning wars in the future. Because if you don't have these points of success, you will fail. And so it's not hindsight. This is about giving, giving soldiers and planners the tools to carry the task out in future. Yeah, it's, it's always worth noting, and it's in our doctrine as well, where we've said, yes, these are descriptive and not prescriptive in nature. They're not a checklist either of, hey, if I add all these things to the recipe, my, my operation, my major campaign, whatever will definitely obviously work it's it's sometimes why it is it feels like they're they're just nebulous enough to be able to have you give yourself a second check but still not so prescriptive where you're like well we're doomed to fail because we just don't have surprise yeah so is it and it's true so you can have half of those things and win you can have only one of those things and win largely it depends upon your opponent and this is the important part 
our principles of war, our principles of war are all focused on what we are going to do to the enemy. If you look at the Russian principles of war from the Soviet era, they are focused on what you have to do to your enemy to make him lose. And there's a duality in there that we don't express. The important part actually is just as important as guaranteeing your own success is guaranteeing your opponent's failure. Um, and thinking about it in terms of failure. So if we think about if we think about the maneuverist approach, the 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 points in the maneuverist approach, um, preemption, dislocation, disruption, targeted destruction, those things are all targeted and act around things like economy of effort and offensive action and surprise and security. So this is where our current doctrine ties into the principles of war. This is why it's so important. And for and, us, but that's you have the defeat to, mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, so you've got to see it the other way around. We see it as, this is what we're going to do to people. And it becomes quite hard to understand how having good morale is suddenly going to cause the enemy to collapse. See it the other way around of maintenance of our morale and destruction of his morale. That makes sense. So almost our view of it as a, in a positive way, what we're going to do doesn't really do justice to what Fuller's trying to say. Which is, it's a good point, because now going back and now that we're in the middle of staffing FM30 and, and kind of going through the edits and the process of, of reevaluating the work that we've done here in Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, now I'm starting to look at, well, hey, you're absolutely right. I didn't address how do I how do I impose complications on the enemy in order to preserve capabilities for myself as the friendly forces or friendly forces with allies? And I think that's it's something that is not necessarily novel. We always know to do that. That is the defeat mechanisms. That is you know, imposing dilemmas on your enemy is, is something that we're very familiar with. But to I think, think, I think that, that perspective is cool. So I think imposing dilemmas, and we, we talked about this again, imposing dilemmas on enemies is almost too analog. Yeah. Uh, it, what that looks like is a process where you impose four coas on your opponent. and say, One of which is an assault. Yeah, what, and he'll have to say, I'm going to do one of these four things. Yeah. Uh, and I think where we have to get into our heads is we need to move away from process and move towards chaos. So what you have to do is overload your opponent's ability to understand the battlefield. Literally fill the space. It doesn't have to be relevant. It just has to be there. And if you can put 10,000 pieces of information coming into one computer or one individual, you've overwhelmed him. And if within that you have a plan, there's a whole different thing. So I think, we, I think actually where we are, and I think the principles of war point to this, is that we need to stop thinking in that analog, I do this, then you do that. It literally is, I need to create chaos, and I need to make you uncomfortable in operating it, and me very comfortable in operating within it. And that, I think, is the key to success. And I think we saw that in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh in, in 2020, where we are looking at, uh, we're looking at an army which is overwhelmed by the amount of information it's receiving, and cannot process it and cannot react. Um, and I think that demonstrates what the future will look like. So it's like a digital upscaled version of Desert Storm. You're looking at 
you've literally gone on. That's what the computer can give you. And so th this isn't about information warfare. This is about, this is about just upscaling what you already do, using the computer chip to give you even more benefit of the sound basis that comes from the principles of war. So, in your opinion, what is your favorite principle of war? Uh, so, I, as I say, I, I rewrote and, and rewrote. Your favorite British principle of war. You also like beans on toast, which is weird. Okay, so I think probably, I used to think it was uh, like you know, hardcore offensive action or something. But I think actually, um, I think security. And the reason I think that is because I think security, everything else comes from security. And it's about deception. I think deception is absolutely key to, to the modern battlefield. Um, so I think for me, yeah, I'll go with security. <laughs> I tend to like surprise personally. It, it was always one of those unique senses that you have done something. First of all, you've worked within operational security. You've managed to protect and defend information. You've not revealed your hand through use of tactical deception, military deception is even, and then you still manage to swing up the side and roll up the flank of an enemy force. And, and that, to me, to impose surprise upon an enemy force speaks volumes about the level of protection that an organization plans for and resources, down to even things like how does a sustainer function, how does a sustainer think in order to preserve maneuver surprise. That's, that's true integration of planning. But of course, all this hangs together. So much of what you said has to do with security, mm -hmm. and surprise is the is the other side of the coin from security. Once surprise is released, it has to be released with offensive action, because you've got to gain and exploit the initiative. And so each one of these actually works together to enable it. So once you've got the initiative and you're moving on, you need to sustain it so you don't culminate. So each of the each of the um, the individual principles is additive, and it creates an overall effect, a convergence, if you will. And that's a very, a very American um, phrase at the moment. But it does. These things converge to create an effect that is that you want at the end. So I think you, to say what's the best or what's the worst doesn't work quite like that. They all are important because they're all parts of the jigsaw puzzle. Wow. I can't thank you enough for coming in and talking about this today. Out of curiosity, since seeing we do have an opportunity to share where we got our research from in developing both our chapters in this podcast, what were some good reference material that you used and what books did you read that struck you as being important enough to talk about today? So I read a fair bit on Fuller, um, a fair bit of Fuller's books. Um, more out of curiosity to see where he'd end up going, to be honest, because I just think he's fascinating, though very odd. Um, and also the uh, Foch's Principles of War, which are a French, the French version. Um, he takes a lot, Foch takes an awful lot from this. An awful lot of this takes Foch. Um, though Foch writes in, a, in an odd style, he talks about individual battles and doesn't really talk about the principles. He, he just sort of mentions them every now and again, and it's quite hard to extract stuff but um, it, that that itself is is fascinating and then some stuff from Little Heart I have generally tried not to go and look at stuff that's more modern 
because I wanted to get the very heart of what this was really about. And that means looking at the work of you know, even Clausewitz and, and, and further forward, what everyone's had to say about the principles of war. Um, and then looking at different battles and seeing how these things, these things work out. So I, when I first took on this project for, for FM30, I was shocked at the same time an article had just come out from AUSA by then Major, now Lieutenant Colonel Amos Fox about evolving and changing the principles of war. And that got me thinking, when at other times have we seen young field grade officers in the Army proposing it? And I was, I, I did a dig back through the SAMS monographs um, and I have to give a shout out to the to the Army Nerd School that if you thought that your monograph maybe in the last 20 years just languished, guess what? If it was about the principles of war, it got read by, by a doctrine writer. Um, and the ones that kind of stuck out to me was Morale as a Principle of War by David Burrell, uh, Mass, the Evolving Tool of the Operational Artist by Mark Laguerre, Principles of War and Campaign Planning, Is There a Connection by Paul Melody, and The Ballad of Odysseus, which is a return of surprise and cunning to operational art by Cameron Craig, which really, that reinforced just how much I, I still, though I understand security and surprise are two sides of the same coin, it really reinforced just why it is I, I do like surprise as a principle. Um, despite the fact that you like to refer to cookies as biscuits, it's still a pleasure to have you here. So, no, it was actually genuinely awesome, and I'm so glad that you were able to provide your insights and the fact that we were able to share our work back and forth across the pond to be able to, to give context and, if nothing else, to be able to give us both a greater understanding of the things that, that make our theories of victory for our independent militaries. It's been an absolute pleasure. Next time I shall be bring you a tin of beans so that you can fully experience the British Beans on Toast experience which has to be seen to be believed. Thank you very much. So we'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Doctrine, please don't forget to subscribe to us on either Apple or Google Podcasts, and you'll get new episodes automatically. And you can follow us on Facebook, on YouTube as well, and on Twitter at U.S. Army Doctrine. And that'll get you updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate on episodes, our new Doctrine Digest video shorts, audiobooks, and most importantly, new publications in Doctrine. Uh, if you're curious about what is happening with Army Doctrine across the pond, you can follow the Land Warfare Center on Twitter at LWC underscore UK. And finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center, nor the British Army and the Land Warfare Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.